Section 9 of A Preface to Politics by Walter Lippmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Continuation of Chapter 7 I have called this misplaced rationality a piece of learned folly, because it shows itself most dangerously among those thinkers about politics who are divorced from action. In the universities, political movements are generally regarded as essentially static, cut and dried solids to be judged by their logical consistency. It is as if the stream of life had to be frozen before it could be studied. The socialist movement was given a certain amount of attention when I was an undergraduate. The discussion turned principally upon two points. Were rent, interest, and dividends earned? Was collective ownership of capital a feasible scheme? And when the professor, who was a good dialectician, had proved that interest was a payment for service, saving, and that public ownership was not practicable, it was assumed that socialism was disposed of. The passions, the needs, the hopes that generate this worldwide phenomenon were, I believe, pocketed and ignored under the pat saying, quote, Of course, socialism is not an economic policy, it's a religion. Unquote. That was the end of the matter for the students of politics. It was then a matter for the divinity schools. If the same scholastic method is in force there, all that would be needed to crush socialism is to show its dogmatic inconsistencies. The theorist is incompetent when he deals with socialism just because he assumes that men are determined by logic and that a false conclusion will stop a moving creative force. Occasionally he recognizes the willful character of politics, then he shakes his head, climbs into an ivory tower, and deplores the moonshine, the religious manias, and the passions of the mob. Real life is beyond his control and influence, because real life is largely agitated by impulses and habits, unconscious needs, faith, hope, and desire. With all his learning he is ineffective because, instead of trying to use the energies of men, he deplores them. Suppose we recognize that creeds are instruments of the will, how would it alter the character of our thinking? Take an ancient quarrel like that over determinism. Whatever your philosophy, when you come to the test of actual facts, you find, I think, all grades of freedom and determinism. For certain purposes you believe in free will, for others you do not. Thus, as Mr. Chesterton suggests, no determinist is prevented from saying, if you please, to the housemaid. In love, in your career, you have no doubt that if is a reality. But when you are engaged in scientific investigation, you try to reduce the spontaneous in life to a minimum. Mr. Arnold Bennett puts forth a rather curious hybrid when he advises us to treat ourselves as free agents and everyone else as an automaton. 
On the other hand, Professor Münsterberg has always insisted that in social relations we must always treat everyone as a purposeful, integrated character. Your doctrine, in short, depends on your purpose. A theory by itself is neither moral nor immoral. Its value is conditioned by the purpose it serves. In any accurate sense, theory is to be judged only as an effective or ineffective instrument of a desire. The discussion of doctrines is technical and not moral. A theory has no intrinsic value. That is why the devil can talk theology. No creed possesses any final sanction. Human beings have desires that are far more important than the tools and toys and churches they make to satisfy them. It is more penetrating, in my opinion, to ask of a creed whether it served than whether it was true. Try to judge the great beliefs that have swayed mankind by their inner logic or their empirical solidity, and you stand forever a dull pedant apart from the interests of men. The Christian tradition did not survive because of Aquinas, or fall before the higher criticism, nor will it be revived because someone proves the scientific plausibility of its doctrine. What we need to know about the Christian epic is the effect it had on men. True or false, they have believed in it for nineteen centuries. Where has it helped them? Where hindered? What needs did it answer? What energies did it transmute? And what part of mankind did it neglect? Where did it begin to do violence to human nature? Political creeds must receive the same treatment. The doctrine of the social contract, formulated by Hobbes and made current by Rousseau, can no longer be accepted as a true account of the origin of society. Jean-Jacques is in fact a supreme case, perhaps even a slight caricature, of the way in which formal creeds bolster up passionate wants. I quote from Professor Walter's introduction in which he says that, quote, the social contract showed to those who were eager to be convinced that no power was legitimate which was guilty of abuses. It is no wonder that its author was buried in the Pantheon with pompous procession, that the framers of the new constitution, Thouret and Lier and Lafayette, did not forget, and dared not forget, its doctrines, that it was the textbook and the delight of Camille de Merlin and Danton and Saint-Just that Robespierre read it through once every day." Unquote. In the perspective of history, no one feels that he has said the last word about a philosophy like Rousseau's after demonstrating its untruth. Good or bad, it has meant too much for any such easy disposal. What shall we call an idea, objectively untrue, but practically of the highest importance? The thinker who has faced this difficulty most radically is Georges Sorel in the Reflections sur la Violence. His doctrine of the social myth has seemed to many commentators one of those silly paradoxes 
that only a revolutionary syndicalist and Frenchman could have put forward. M. Sorel is engaged in presenting the general strike as the decisive battle of the class struggle and the core of the socialist movement. Now, whatever else he may be, M. Sorel is not naive. The sharp criticism of other socialists was something he could not peacefully ignore. They told him that the general strike was an idle dream, that it could never take place, that even if it could, the results would not be very significant. Sidney Webb, in the customary Fabian fashion, had dismissed the general strike as a sign of socialist immaturity. There is no doubt that M. Sorel felt the force of these attacks, but he was not ready to abandon his favorite idea because it had been shown to be unreasonable and impossible. Just the opposite effect showed itself, and he seized the opportunity of turning an intellectual defeat into a spiritual triumph. This performance must have delighted him to the very bottom of his soul, for he has boasted that his task in life is to aid in ruining le prestige de la culture bourgeoise. Monsieur Sorel's defense of the general strike is very startling. He admits that it may never take place, that it is not a true picture of the goal of the socialist movement. Without a blush, he informs us that this central gospel of the working class is simply a myth. The admission frightens M. Sorel not at all. Quote, it doesn't matter much, he remarks, whether myths contain details actually destined to realization in the scheme of an historical future. They are not astrological almanacs. It may even be that nothing of what they express will actually happen as in the case of that catastrophe which the early Christians expected. Are we not accustomed in daily life to recognizing that the reality differs very greatly from the ideas of it that we made before we acted? Yet that doesn't hinder us from making resolutions. Myths must be judged as instruments for acting upon present conditions. All discussion about the manner of applying them concretely to the course of history is senseless. The entire myth is what counts. There is no use, then, in reasoning about details which might arise in the midst of the class struggle. Even though the revolutionists should be deceiving themselves through and through in making a fantastic picture of the general strike, this picture would still have been a power of the highest order in preparing for revolution, so long as it expressed completely all the aspirations of socialism, and bound together revolutionary ideas with a precision and firmness that no other methods of thought could have given." Unquote. It may well be imagined that this highly sophisticated doctrine was regarded as perverse, all the ordinary prejudices of thought are irritated by a thinker who frankly advises masses of his fellow men to hold fast to a belief which by all the canons of common sense is nothing but an illusion. Monsieur Sorel must have felt the need of closer statement, 
for in a letter to Daniel Halevi, published in the second edition, he makes his position much clearer. Quote, Revolutionary myths, we read, enable us to understand the activity, the feelings, and the ideas of a populace preparing to enter into a decisive struggle. They are not descriptions of things, but expressions of will. Unquote. The italics are mine. They set in relief the insight that makes M. Sorel so important to our discussion. I do not know whether a quotation torn from its context can possibly do justice to its author. I do know that for any real grasp of this point, it is necessary to read M. Sorel with great sympathy. One must grant, at least, that he has made an accurate observation. The history of the world is full of great myths which have had the most concrete results. M. Sorel cites primitive Christianity, the Reformation, the French Revolution, and the Mazzini campaign. The men who took part in those great social movements summed up their aspiration in pictures of decisive battles resulting in the ultimate triumph of their cause. We in America might add an example from our own political life. For it is Theodore Roosevelt who is actually attempting to make himself and his admirers the heroes of a new social myth. Did he not announce from the platform at Chicago, quote, We stand at Armageddon, and we battle for the Lord, unquote. Let no one dismiss M. Sorel, then, as an empty paradoxer. The myth is not one of the outgrown crudities of our pagan ancestors. We, in the midst of our science and our rationalism, are still making myths, and their force is felt in the actual affairs of life. They convey an impulse, not a program, nor a plan of reconstruction. Their practical value cannot be ignored, for they embody the motor currents in social life. Myths are to be judged, as M. Sorel says, by their ability to express aspiration. They stand or fall by that. In such a test, the Christian myth, for example, would be valued for its power of incarnating human desire. That it did not do so completely is the cause of its decline. From Okasan to Nietzsche, men have resented it as a partial and stunting dream. It had too little room for profane love, and only by turning the Church of Christ into the Church militant could the essential Christian passivity obtain the assent of aggressive and masculine races. Today traditional Christianity has weakened in the face of man's interest in the conquest of this world. The liberal and advanced churches recognize this fact by exhibiting a great preoccupation with everyday affairs. Now they may be doing important service, I have no wish to deny that, but when the Christian churches turn to civics, to reformism or socialism, they are in fact announcing that the Christian dream is dead. They may continue to practice some of its moral teachings and to hold some of its creed, but the Christian impulse is for them no longer active. 
a new dream, which they reverently call Christian, has sprung from their desires. During their life these social myths contain a nation's finest energy. It is just because they are not descriptions of things but expressions of will that their influence is so great. Ignore what a man desires, and you ignore the very source of his power. Run against the grain of a nation's genius, and see where you get with your laws. Robert Burns was right when he preferred poetry to charters. The recognition of this truth by Sorel is one of the most impressive events in the revolutionary movement. Standing as a spokesman of an actual social revolt, he has not lost his vision because he understands its function. If Machiavelli is a symbol of the political theorist making reason an instrument of purpose, we may take Sorel as a self-conscious representative of the impulses which generate purpose. It must not be supposed that respect for the myth is a discovery of Sorel's. He is but one of a number of contemporary thinkers who have reacted against a very stupid prejudice of nineteenth-century science to the effect that the mental habits of human beings were not, quote, facts, unquote. Unless ideas mirrored external nature, they were regarded as beneath the notice of the scientific mind. But in more recent years we have come to realize that in a world so full of ignorance and mistake, error itself is worthy of study. Our untrue ideas are significant because they influence our lives enormously. They are facts to be investigated. One might point to the great illumination that has resulted from Freud's analysis of the abracadabra of our dreams. No one can any longer dismiss the fantasy because it is logically inconsistent, superficially absurd, or objectively untrue. William James might also be cited for his defense of those beliefs that are beyond the realm of proof. His essay, The Will to Believe, is a declaration of independence, which says in effect that scientific demonstration is not the only test of ideas. He stated the case for those beliefs which influence life so deeply, though they fail to describe it. James himself was very disconcerting to many scientists, because he insisted on expressing his aspirations about the universe in what his colleague Santayana calls a romantic cosmology. Quote, I am far from wishing to suggest that such a view seems to me more probable than conventional idealism or the Christian orthodoxy. All three are in the region of dramatic system-making and myth, to which probabilities are irrelevant. Unquote. It is impossible to leave this point without quoting Nietzsche, who had this insight and stated it most provocatively. In Beyond Good and Evil, Nietzsche says flatly that, quote, The falseness of an opinion is not for us any objection to it. It is here, perhaps, that our new language sounds most strangely. The question is how far an opinion is life-furthering, life-preserving, species-preserving, perhaps species-rearing, 
Unquote. Then he comments on the philosophers, quote, They all pose as though their real opinions had been discovered and attained through the self-evolving of a cold, pure, divinely indifferent dialectic, whereas, in fact, a prejudiced proposition, idea, or suggestion, which is generally their heart's desire abstracted and refined, is defended by them with arguments sought out after the event. They are all advocates who do not wish to be regarded as such, generally astute defenders also of their prejudices, which they dub truths, and very far from having the conscience which bravely admits this to itself, very far from having the good taste or the courage which goes so far as to let this be understood, perhaps to warn friend or foe, or in cheerful confidence and self-ridicule. It has gradually become clear to me what every great philosophy up till now has consisted of, namely, the confession of its originator, and a species of involuntary and unconscious autobiography, and moreover that the moral, or immoral, purpose in every philosophy has constituted the true vital germ out of which the entire plant has always grown. Whoever considers the fundamental impulses of man, with a view to determining how far they may have acted as inspiring genii, or as demons and kobolds, will find that they have all practiced philosophy at one time or another, and that each one of them would have been only too glad to look upon itself as the ultimate end of existence and the legitimate lord over all the other impulses. For every impulse is imperious, and as such attempts to philosophize. Unquote. What Nietzsche has done here is, in his swashbuckling fashion, to cut under the abstract and final pretensions of creeds. Difficulties arise when we try to apply this wisdom in the present. That dogmas were instruments of human purposes is not so incredible. That they still are instruments is not so clear to everyone. And that they will be, that they should be, this seems a monstrous attack on the citadel of truth. It is possible to believe that other men's theories were temporary and merely useful. We like to believe that ours will have a greater authority. It seems like topsy-turvy land to make reason serve the irrational. Yet that is just what it has always done, and ought always to do. Many of us are ready to grant that in the past men's motives were deeper than their intellects. We forgive them with a kind of self-righteousness which says that they knew not what they did. But to follow the great tradition of human wisdom deliberately, with our eyes open in the manner of Sorel, that seems a crazy procedure. A notion of intellectual honor fights against it. We think we must aim at final truth, and not allow autobiography to creep into speculation. Now the trouble with such an idol is that autobiography creeps in anyway. The more we censor it, the more likely it is to appear disguised, to fool us subtly, 
and perhaps dangerously. The men like Nietzsche and James, who show the willful origin of creeds, are, in reality, the best watchers of the citadel of truth. For there is nothing disastrous in the temporary nature of our ideas. They are always that. But there may very easily be a train of evil in the self-deception which regards them as final. I think God will forgive us our skepticism sooner than our inquisitions. From the political point of view, another observation is necessary. The creed of a Rousseau, for example, is active in politics, not for what it says, but for what people think it says. I have urged that Marx found scientific reasons for what he wanted to do. It is important to add that the people who adopted his reasons for what they wanted to do were not any too respectful of Marx's reasons. Thus the so-called materialistic philosophy of Karl Marx is not by any means identical with the theories one hears among Marxian socialists. There is a big distortion in the transmitting of ideas. A common purpose, far more than common ideas, binds Marx to his followers. And when a man comes to write about his philosophy, he is confronted with a choice. Shall the creed described be that of Marx, or of the Marxians? For the study of politics I should say unhesitatingly that it is more important to know what socialist leaders, stump speakers, pamphleteers, think Marx meant, than to know what he said. For then you are dealing with living ideas. To search his text has its uses, but compared with the actual tradition of Marx it is the work of pedantry. I say this here for two reasons because I hope to avoid the critical attack of the genuine Marxian specialist, and because the observation is, I believe, relevant to our subject. Relevant it is in that it suggests the importance of style, of propaganda, the popularization of ideas. The host of men who stand between a great thinker and the average man are not automatic transmitters. They work on the ideas. Perhaps that is why a genius usually hates his disciples. It is interesting to notice the explanation given by Frau Forster Nietzsche for her brother's quarrel with Wagner. She dates it from the time when Nietzsche, under the guise of Wagnerian propaganda, began to expound himself. The critics and interpreters are themselves creative. It is really unfair to speak of the Marxian philosophy as a political force. It is juster to speak of the Marxian tradition. So when I write of Marx's influence, I have in mind what men and women in socialist meetings, in daily life here in America, hold as a faith and attribute to Marx. There is no pretension whatever to any critical study of Das Kapital itself. I am thinking rather of stuffy halls in which an earnest voice is expounding the evolution of capitalism, of little groups, curious and bewildered, listening in the streets of New York to the story of the battle between the master class and the working class, of little red pamphlets, of newspapers and cartoons, 
awkward, badly printed, and not very genial, a great stream of spellbinding and controversy through which the aspirations of millions are becoming articulate. The tradition is saying that the system, and not the individual, is at fault. It describes that system as one in which a small class owns the means of production and holds the rest of mankind in bondage. Arts, religions, laws, as well as vice and crime and degradation, have their source in this central economic condition. If you want to understand our life, you must see that it is determined by the massing of capital in the hands of a few. All epochs are determined by economic arrangements, but a system of property always contains within itself, quote, the seeds of its own destruction, unquote. Mechanical inventions suggest a change. A dispossessed class compels it. So mankind has progressed through savagery, chattel slavery, serfdom, to wage slavery, or the capitalism of today. This age is pregnant with the socialism of tomorrow. So roughly the tradition is handed on. Two sets of ideas seem to dominate it. We are creatures of economic conditions. A war of classes is being fought everywhere in which the proletariat will ultimately capture the industrial machinery and produce a sound economic life as the basis of peace and happiness for all. The emphasis on environment is insistent. Facts are marshaled. The news of the day is interpreted to show that men are determined by economic conditions. This fixation has brought down upon the socialists a torrent of abuse in which atheism and materialism are prevailing epithets. But the propaganda continues, and the philosophy spreads, penetrating reform groups, social workers, historians, and sociologists. It has served the socialist purpose well. To the working men it has brought home the importance of capturing the control of industry. Economic determinism has been an antidote to mere preaching of goodness, to hero worship, and political quackery. Socialism, to succeed, had to concentrate attention on the ownership of capital. Whenever any other interest, like religion or patriotism, threatened to diffuse that attention, socialist leaders have always been ready to show that the economic fact is more central. Dignity and prestige were supplied by making economics the key of history. Passion was chained by building paradise upon it. In all the political philosophies there is none so adapted to its end. Every sanction that mankind respects has been grouped about this one purpose, the control of capital. It is as if all history converged upon the issue, and the workers in the cause feel that they carry within them the destiny of the race. Start anywhere with an orthodox socialist and he will lead you to this supreme economic situation. Tyrannies and race hatred, national rivalries, sex problems, the difficulties of artistic endeavor, all failures, crimes, vices, there is not one which he will not relate 
to private capitalism. Nor is there anything disingenuous about this focusing of the attention. A real belief is there. Of course you will find plenty of socialists who see other issues, and who smile a bit at the rigors of economic determinism. In these later days there is, in fact, a decided loosening in the creed. But it is fair to say that the mass of socialists hold this philosophy with as much solemnity as a reformer held his when he wrote to me that the cure for obscenity was the taxation of land values and absolute free trade. Single-mindedness has done good service. It has bound the world together and has helped men to think socially. Turning their attention away from the romanticism of history, the materialistic philosophy has helped them to look at realities. It has engendered a fine concern about average people, about the voiceless multitudes who have been left to pass unnoticed. Not least among the blessings is a shattering of the good and bad man theory, the assassination of tyrants or the adoration of saviors. A shallow and specious otherworldliness has been driven out, an otherworldliness which is really nothing but laziness about this one. And if from a speculative angle the Marxian tradition has shaded too heavily the economic facts, it was at least a plausible and practical exaggeration. But the drawbacks are becoming more and more evident as socialism approaches nearer to power and responsibility. The feeling that man is a creature and not a creator is disastrous as a personal creed when you come to act. If you insist upon being determined by conditions, you do hesitate about saying, I shall. You are likely to wait for something to determine you. Personal initiative and individual genius are poorly regarded. Many socialists are suspicious of originality. This philosophy, so useful in propaganda, is becoming a burden in action. That is another way of saying that the instrument has turned into an idol. For while it is illuminating to see how environment molds men, it is absolutely essential that men regard themselves as molders of their environment. A new philosophical basis is becoming increasingly necessary to socialism, one that may not be truer than the old materialism, but that shall simply be more useful. Having learned for a long time what is done to us, we are now faced with the task of doing. With this changed purpose goes a change of instruments. All over the world socialists are breaking away from the stultifying influence of the outworn determinism. For the time is at hand when they must cease to look upon socialism as inevitable in order to make it so. Nor will the philosophy of class warfare serve this new need. That can be effective only so long as the working class is without sovereignty. But no sooner has it achieved power than a new outlook is needed in order to know what to do with it. The tactics of the battlefield are of no use when the battle is won. I picture this philosophy as one of deliberate choices. 
The underlying tone of it is that society is made by man for man's uses, that reforms are inventions to be applied when by experiment they show their civilizing value. Emphasis is placed upon the devising, adapting, constructing faculties. There is no reason to believe that this view is any colder than that of the war of class against class. It will generate no less energy. Men today can feel almost as much zest in the building of the Panama Canal as they did in a military victory. Their domineering impulses find satisfaction in conquering things, in subjecting brute forces to human purposes. This sense of mastery in a winning battle against the conditions of our life is, I believe, the social myth that will inspire our reconstructions. We shall feel free to choose among alternatives. To take this much of socialism, insert so much syndicalism, leave standing what of capitalism seems worth conserving. We shall be making our own house for our own needs, cities to suit ourselves, and we shall believe ourselves capable of moving mountains, as engineers do, when mountains stand in their way. And history, science, philosophy will support our hopes. What will fascinate us in the past will be the records of inventions, of great choices, of those alternatives on which destiny seems to hang. The splendid epochs will be interpreted as monuments of man's creation, not of his propulsion. We shall be interested primarily in the way nations established their civilization in spite of hostile conditions. Admiration will go out to the men who did not submit, who bent things to human use. We may see the entire tragedy of life in being driven. Half-truths and illusions, if you like, but tonic. This view will suit our mood, for we shall be making, and the makers of history will become more real to us. Instead of urging that issues are inevitable, instead of being swamped by problems that are unavoidable, we may stand up and affirm the issues we propose to handle. Perhaps we shall say with Nietzsche, let the value of everything be determined afresh by you. End of section 9